Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. Uh, we will be joined a little bit later by uh, my co-host, Regan DeLoggins. And uh, look, I've got to say it, we're heading into a holiday weekend. So the question is, what holiday are you celebrating uh, come Monday? What's making your three-day weekend? Well, obviously, the debate rages on between Indigenous Peoples Day and, uh, and that other day. Um, and of course, we, we keep going back and forth uh, over this. I mean, I will say, uh, and, and I've mentioned this many times throughout the program, at least within this last year, that with the rise of the call for social justice, Black Lives Matter, the, in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder and George Floyd's murder, we, uh, as Native people, we've benefited some from the calls to action. Because at the same time that Confederate statues were coming down, at the same time that a lot of those racist statues from the South, you know, celebrating, you know, the slave, the slave era and all that other stuff, Columbus statues came down too. Uh, in fact, Hunapara Sarah statue came down in California and a few other places. So these these symbols of not just slavery and oppression, but of colonialism also came down. So, so come Monday, you're going to have some, uh, I guess, some choices uh, to, to make about how you regard the, the day. Obviously, all your mattress sales and your, th you know, your three-day holiday sales are, will probably still list uh, that other guy. But um, look, I want to use the program today not just to, to you know, beat up on Christopher Columbus and uh, and you know say so many things that have been said over and over again but I want to address it you know in a more broad sense the the education I mean because look at, at its core the problem with the Chris with the celebrating Christopher Columbus is that it's is, is that it's a false narrative but that false narrative is being taught in school it's being it's being taught every day someplace in the United States to children you know sometimes as young as five years old you know, so when I get hit with this question about what we uh, what we should do to to add more native uh, studies or history or whatever uh, into a school day curriculum, the problem with that is who are you going to bump? You know, who who are you going to get rid of to make room for for more and more of what? Because the problem isn't just what isn't being taught, but the problem is what is being taught. This idea of, again, Christopher Columbus and, and the myth of him being this brave explorer discovering America and, you know, and, and attributing you know, all that is good about the United States or Canada or, or anyplace else to this, essentially, this, this guy who was guilty of some of the most heinous acts in the history of man. So, I mean, uh, you know, the one thing I will say, if you want a good overview of the atrocities that that Columbus uh, committed I, I would recommend that you go to my YouTube channel and or, or just go to YouTube in general and search Columbus in his own words that's my video um, I use not only uh, things that Columbus wrote in his own journal but I also use uh, the the words of his contemporaries uh, uh, bishops uh, other other people who who were part of his crew uh, Bartolome de la Casas is the, is the bishop I was thinking of. Um, they wrote extensively about not just what Columbus was responsible for, but what would follow in the wake of, uh, of Columbus and, and the, the, the 
you know, the genocide that he would start and would, you know, continue for, you know, for centuries for all intents and purposes. But so if you go to if you go to that YouTube channel, uh, Let's Talk Native TV, or if you just search Columbus in his own words. Now, I'd also like to recommend a video that I actually screened uh, downstairs at, at the Brooklyn Commons, right? Right here, right here on, on Atlantic Avenue. Um, I've done it a couple of times. And it, the, the film is called Even the Rain. Now, it's a Spanish-language film, and it is really a powerful film. What, what the film essentially, the, the plot of the film is that they're making a movie. They're making a Christopher Columbus movie. And what is demonstrated in, in you know, what is really described as layers is, is how racism has prevailed in all these years. Even as a film crew is trying to show the atrocities of Christopher Columbus, they too are demonstrating their own racism towards indigenous people. So uh, again, I recommend it highly. It, it's, it's got subtitles so you can, you can follow along. You know, I've, I've had the advantage of seeing this film probably a half dozen or a dozen times, but uh, even the rain, it gives you not only a good view um, historically for what Columbus was responsible for, but, how that legacy of racism and oppression uh, continues through the the real time of the uh, uh, of the of the film. So anyway, uh, those are two two things that I recommend. If you if you feel like you've got to uh, understand what is the controversy between celebrating you know, this uh, you know the, again the, this man who really was the uh, the beginning of of the American genocide. Uh, that's that's what I would recommend recommend that you listen to. But beyond Columbus, look the Pocahontas story. I mean, I I speak usually um, at a number of schools throughout the year. One of the schools that I speak at is 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 a Native American magnet school in uh, in the Buffalo School District, and and I usually do it at least once or twice a year um, during the month of November, which is oftentimes regarded as Native American Heritage Month or something like that, um, is when I usually get out and speak to students in schools. But I, I cracked open their history book. It, in a magnet school, a Native American magnet school, cracked open the history book, and there's the Pocahontas story, the same Pocahontas story, saving Captain John Smith's life. And that's, that story has been debunked so many times, but it's still being taught to children. Happy little pilgrims and happy little Indians, you know, the first Thanksgiving. So many of these things that are being taught are just categorically wrong. So be, be, to the extent that we want to talk about adding curriculum, I think we need to gut what they've been teaching for all these years. I mean, most of it is wrong. And or when they do cite or, or, or try to bring in any accuracy as it relates to native a, any of the you know thousands of distinct native peoples it, it always gets captured like in a timestamp. this is what this is what a quote-unquote indian is this is part of the battle that we have over the mascot issue i mean so you have these schools that are teaching children every single day that this is what an indian is this is what a redskin is this is what a warrior or a, a savage or or whatever or, or they'll use specific names like Mohawk or Cherokee or, you know, the, the fighting Sioux or, or whatever else. So they will essentially get a picture drawn by a white man, usually, or something, you know, that's in the public domain, 
call that their mascot, call that their logo, and children will be taught that that is what a quote-unquote Indian is. And that's the problem. You know, nobody is going to, to, to demonstrate to a class of kids, regardless of, of the age, you know, what, what's the contemporary conditions that, that Native people live in? How has it worked out? Well, because it hasn't. I mean, some of the most obscene uh, poverty in the United States exists on Native territories. And that's poverty that was created. And, and it is so important that people can, can see Native people for who we are, not just in these dire circumstances caused by poverty or, or, you know, or any number of other things that we face in, in our battles uh, with the state and federal governments, but, but just to know that we're, we're here and that we've persevered through 500 years of genocide, 100 years of residential schools, and we're still here. And, and we're, we're not just still here existing, we are resisting. So for all of the oppression, for all of the genocide, for the massacres, for the disease, for the, you know, the starvation, for you know, the, the scalping, for our, the bounties paid for, for our, our, our bodies and our scalps, for all of that, we're still here. And you know what? Many of us are still fighting for our distinction as Native people, not as, uh, not as welcomed Americans. You know, I oftentimes get into a, a conversation trying to explain that while we certainly can have allies and even accomplices uh, as we fight for our sovereignty and distinction, um, and we can support others who are fighting against oppression, whether that oppression is not being treated equally within the system of the United States, we can, we, we can assist each other and we can support each other, but we aren't necessarily fighting for the same thing. And I, and I think this is, there's an important distinction here. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is we aren't fighting for our civil rights, our rights within the U.S. Constitution. Most of us aren't. I mean, some are. Some are. Most of us are fighting for the distinction, for our autonomy, sovereignty. You know, part of the reason, you know, so many of us really have a hard time embracing, fully anyway, the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is because it does nothing to assert our um and recognize our sovereignty the word sovereign or sovereignty i think is only mentioned once in the whole document and it's not talking about ours it's talking about the sovereignty of the nation states that this declaration is supposed to reel in and compel these nation states to recognize the the minimum standard that native people should be accommodated by these nation states for dignity and survival. But the reason they mentioned sovereignty in, in this document is that they want to be sure that nobody interprets this as somehow overstepping or infringing upon the sovereignty of the nation states. But there's no mention about the sovereignty of Native people, our territories, the original sovereignty. It's not ever mentioned. I mean, they talk about treaty-protected rights and that kind of stuff, but you know what? That's not where our, our, our sovereignty comes from. Treaties didn't give us anything. For the most part, they took things away. So as we go into this three-day weekend and the battle or debate rages on between Indigenous Peoples Day and Columbus Day, I mean, you got to ask the question. 
how is it how has it worked out <laughs> and and what is the best thing that we can do today you know i i just gave us um a talk up at uh, adirondack community college this week and and that was one of the questions you know what can, what we can we do and and i was speaking to a uh, um classes of uh, writers and, and broadcasters and and i said the bottom line is whether you're a broadcaster or a writer, you are essentially a teacher. You're a storyteller. And now you might be telling true stories. You may be, may be uh, writing fiction or creating, creating any number of um, uh, you know, types of film or, 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 or media. But you're storytellers. And the, the best advice I can give to anybody is not to look to me to provide you with the information you need. But... But let me help ask the question that you should find the answers to. I want to encourage people to learn. And then as you learn, I want you to teach. So I'm not trying to be the teacher. I mean, I've got questions. And I, and I think, you know, you can't even, you won't even know what answers to look for if you don't know what questions to ask. I mean, there's a lot of information available on the Internet these days. I mean, there is nothing that I talk about on this show or on my podcast, my Let's Talk Native podcast, that you can't find, you know, hosts of information about on the internet. But you have to know what to look for. I mean, as I talk to, you know, to college students, and, you know, frankly, you know, people with lots of letters after the name. I, in some of the events I do in New York, I oftentimes know that I am telling something that they had never heard before. I mean, even, um, you know, even this week, I'm asking a whole room full of people, has anybody ever heard of Mankato, Minnesota? I'm, I'm wearing my um, uh, Remember the Dakota 38 t-shirt, for those of you who are watching on Facebook and you're trying to make it out, and it's got a picture of Abraham Lincoln with a, with a noose in his hands. Because Abraham Lincoln signed the execution order for 38 Dakota. Now, they're not teaching this in school. And I realize there is a, there's an age appropriateness issue with what you're going to teach you know, kids, but you know what? By the time a kid comes out of school at 18 years old, they should know some of the truth. They should know that for all of the heroism that is that is constantly pounded in these kids from from five years old to 18 years old, that some of these American heroes aren't heroes to everybody. And I'm not just talking about you know pitting the the, the evil versus the good like in, in World War you know two or any or you know, you know hating on communism or or whatever. I just mean in general, the the struggles that Native people have experienced in the United States and Canada, and and before the United States and Canada once Europeans landed on our shores, is is pretty well documented. I mean, there's a lot of information out there, and. And frankly, some of it should be known. And it certainly shouldn't be lied about. And, and you know, again, the stories that are told in school today that are in the, uh, the modern history book. I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I read the book Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen. And it's not just about Native issues. We have a chapter, I think, in his book. But the, the thing that James Lowen uh, wrote in his book was that the tendency uh for history books both at the even at the college level the early college level was to make it sound like america faced a problem and almost never acknowledged that they caused some of these problems but faced a problem of slavery you know racism um communism you know whatever the the axis power faced a problem 
and solved it and everything had a happy ending. Well, that's not true. I mean, we at the you know after slavery, you, you have Jim Crow. You have we still are fighting today over the the freedom and the rights to, to vote in you know for, especially for, for for Black Americans. Don't bother fighting for my right to vote. I don't I don't vote in American elections. Not my government. Not my not my clown. Not my circus. You know so, but. Um, but the, but the fact that there are still racists that lead the United States and know that they need to target people of color, black people in particular, but the, the growing electorate that can unseat them and do it in ways that are so overtly racist. I mean, so don't tell me it's got a happy ending. There is a, I mean, and, and here, is, here lies one of the other problems. The other problem is that the tendency is to always showcase somebody who has had success from a marginalized people in the dominant culture. In other words, demonstrate the success of assimilation. So you're going to lift up Deb Hallen comes to mind. You're going to you're going to cite Deb Hallen as you know the, this great American success story, Native American success story. Well, she isn't really the hero to, to all Native people. I mean, she, she basically works for you. <laughs> uh, so when you look at how people are, are going to, um, you know, again, profile success in the United States, you, you can see where the model is. It's, it's usually based on money. You know, people want to cite Oprah Winfrey. You know, they, they want to cite um, you know, compliance, conformity, and assimilation. You know, among the stories that, you know, that, you know, folks love to tell uh, is the, the the code talker story about how Native American people saved the uh, the United States. You know, and it really gets embellished. Saved the United States, helped the United States win the war by offering their language to be used uh, as an unbreakable code against the Germans and the uh, and the Japanese. Well, for one thing, most of that is a lie. Our language wasn't offered; it was stolen. Many of the people who who served as code talkers were all but forced to do it. And, and one of the little known facts about uh, a code talker is that the fear that a code talker would be captured and then ultimately give up the code was so intense that the, uh, that the strategy was to tell a minder to shoot friendly fire now to kill a, a code talker rather than let them get, uh, get captured. I mean, there, there's no other circumstance in, um, in, in any kind of military protocol where, it's, it, where anybody's authorized to kill um, their own people, uh, especially if their own people aren't doing any active harm. I mean, it's, it's one thing if, you know, a soldier loses his mind or something like that, it, it suffers P, PTSD and, um, you know, and becomes dangerous. But, but to suggest that somebody should be killed rather than allow them to be captured because, because their life wasn't as meaningful or uh, pertinent as the code that, that they ripped from them in terms of language. So, I mean, so even this, you know, that we also hear about how Native people enlist at the highest rate. And so that gets twisted as, uh, around, you know, for people to, to think, well, well, that means because the United States, you know, Native people are so loyal to the United States and that we, 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 love what, we love what you've done with the place and so we want to defend it. Well, no, that's not, that's not the case. We don't love what you've done with the place. You've kind of made a mess of things.
But the reason that native people enlist at a high rate is because, frankly, there are so little opportunities on native territories because of the poverty that was created by policy on most native territories. I mean, again, the vast majority of, uh, of Americans have no idea what, uh, what a native territory is like, or what you call reservations. And you look, there have been politicians for years that have, you know, that have decried the failure of the reservation system. It's a system that, that was created by government, and it was intended to be an undesirable life. I mean, the, the, the story, as it's as it told, says reser reservations aren't a place for native people to go to live. They're, they're places for native people to die. And while I won't necessarily go to that extreme, because not all native territories are, are devastating, but they all have problems. And most of the problems that exist on our native territories are the result of bad state and federal policy. And usually that state and federal policy um, hurt economic development. They inflict a level of poverty on people that most Americans could not even, uh, couldn't even imagine. They couldn't imagine what a, uh, an unemployment rate that isn't just double digits. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, above 50%, 60-70% unemployment. And not just during economic crises. Not, this isn't a COVID. These aren't COVID numbers. These are everyday numbers. So when you, when you understand what has been created in the American system, it is really important that, that people stop trying to gloss over and whitewash our existence through some sort of you know, lie about our history or just cherry pick something from our history to say, okay, this is what we're going we're gonna to teach you about Native people. We're not going to teach you that, yes, they've always, there's always been some level of resistance and that resistance exists today. It exists today in Minnesota trying to shut down Line 3. It exists throughout the U.S. and Canada as we try to expose the, uh, the epidemic that is missing and murdering indigenous women, uh, women, girls, um, LGBT, two-spirit. Look, it, it, we are trying to, to fight back against the cover-up that residential schools, 100 years of, uh, of genocide via this residential school system that existed both in the U.S. and Canada, well, frankly, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, South America. I mean, the model was created in the United States, exported to Canada, and then throughout the world. Just like many of the policies that come from Europe, essentially, but they, you know, some of these legal doctrines have been so refined in the United States. And, and, the, and of course, what comes to mind is the doctrine of Christian discovery. Come Monday, some people are going to be celebrating Christopher Columbus. And the, the, the main thing that came out of Columbus's voyage was the expansion of the doctrine of Christian discovery. And, and that is church dogma. Come, it comes straight, out of the, straight from the popes that essentially not just gave permission but encouraged the Christian nations of Europe to locate, find, and take over lands that, that are only occupied by, uh, uh, by pagans, you know, by, by native people. And in fact, if a land was only occupied by non-believers, non-Christians, 
that land could be regarded as um, what they call telenullius, uh, uh, terra, terra nullius, uh, void, a void of, of, uh, of, uh, of life. Nobody lived there. <laughs> Vacant land. Because if they weren't Christians, then they don't count. I mean, this is the, the ultimate in de dehumanization. But the doctrine of Christian discovery, although it, it certainly was a driving force behind much of the, um, the colonial era, it would, it would become codified in law in the United States. And the fact that the United States would codify it in law meant, meant that this kind of legal doctrine that too would be exported, not by the, the Catholic Church, but exported by the, the U.S. justice system, the legal system. Canada would, would adopt you know, uh, the, the, the similar, not just from the church, but, but again, looking at the United States as this model of excellence for, uh, for jurisprudence. So this idea that you could embed in law religious doctrine that solves the problem of land title, because essentially what what Justice John Marshall wrote of in Johnson v. McIntosh in 1823 was that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. Once, once white people discovered us, our sovereignty was, would evaporate. Ruth Bader Ginsburg would cite and uh, describe in her footnotes the, the doctrine of Christian discovery, basically saying that the land uh, would become vested in the sovereign. Upon discovery, the, the land's occupied by native people the sovereignty of that land the the title of that land would would be vested in the sovereign first the discovering nations of europe then the states and then ultimately the united states that's that's ruth Bader ginsburg explaining what the doctrine of discovery was using that as as her guide to to, to throw out a, a land um dispute where oneidas had actually purchased land on the open market and said we're, we're reclaiming our land through the open market, through the free market. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because um, once white Europeans discovered you, you no longer could assert sovereignty. I mean, that's essentially what the Doctrine of Christian Discovery said. And it, and it doesn't, it was not, I would say, say universally applied I mean, there are exceptions. If you listen, look, look at the language in the Canandaigua Treaty, which was never duly or properly ratified, but there the United States says, no, we acknowledge the land is yours. We will never claim the same, nor will we disturb your, you and your free use and enjoyment of your lands. I mean, that's, that's the United States saying that to the Six Nations. So did the doctrine of Christian discovery apply? Well, it may not have applied necessarily um, with the land title as we were occupying it, but now you got Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that it does apply because she cites this footnote number one um, in the United case. And of course, this goes beyond land. It goes into jurisdiction issues and uh, you know um, sovereignty issues, all, all kinds of things. So, I mean, for, for Native people, the legacy of Christopher Columbus is the doctrine of Christian discovery. That's, you know, that's what we see when we see a statue. You know, we see this church doctrine that becomes twisted around and, and codified in law. And look, and if that seems like a stretch, I mean, just think about what Columbus is in the first place. I mean, let's be clear. Christopher Columbus never stepped foot on, uh, in North America or South America. He basically only made it as far as the islands of the Caribbean. And honestly, 
it is likely that he died not knowing that those islands were not somehow the easternmost islands of Indonesia and, and you know, what, were, what was regarded as the East Indies, the Indies, the Indonesia. In fact, rather than correct it, they decided, okay, we're going to call the Caribbean the West Indies. And the native people will forevermore be called Indians. Well, that's why so many of us reject that, because that's another legacy of Columbus. The, you know, the, the, the label that has uh, been bestowed upon us, and of course, the doctrine of Christian discovery. Now, if you're going to uh, spend a significant amount of time in a classroom, not just because the first holiday of the year is still being celebrated by many schools as Christopher Columbus, Columbus Day, but if you're going to talk about this person, you should tell the truth. And frankly, the truth should be told about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and you know Ben Franklin, uh, Abraham Lincoln. The truth, which is oftentimes going to provide a, some balance to the heroism that you know that most of, of American history, propagandized American history. Um, says about these people. I mean, everybody wants to talk about founding fathers. I mean, you still hear politicians talking about the infinite wisdom of the founding fathers and the great constitution. Well, you know, the constitution kind of sucked. It allowed for slavery. It, uh, it, I mean, the constitution has been amended many times and it still is a flawed document. It still has the remnants of, of slave era and things like the electoral college and, um, you know, and, and so many... You know, so many things that have were catering to, to southern slave states. Certainly, if you consider how the, the Constitution, as they, they claimed that um, the law of the land, uh, that the, the treaties needed to be upheld and they, they need to be held as the supreme, uh, held as supreme uh, as the law of the land, that's never been the case. There, there's essentially never been a treaty with native people which always should have been, and, and when they were crafted, were done in such a way that they could be held up, supposedly held up with, with treaties with other foreign nations. But they've, but they've never been honored. And in fact, they've, they've worked it out through the Supreme Court that uh, the treaties you know, could be, could be um, um, broken. And they could be broken, and they needed to be broken in such a way, but that's not the way it's, uh, it's always been with Native territories. There's never been any clear, outright um, uh, assertion that, yes, we're, we're no longer um, following the, the language of the treaty. I mean, the crazy part is, I, I, I'm talking about Canandaigua. Among, Canandaigua is a, is, a, is a relatively short treaty. It's only like seven articles. And much of it, most of it, isn't followed. I mean, three times in, in the in Canandaigua Treaty, the United States says that they recognize that we own our land, that our, the land is ours, and they will never claim it, never. And yet, we still have to have a debate with every lawmaker, every politician, about whether the Cattaraugus Territory of the Sangha Nation is part of New York State or the United States. By treaty, it isn't. So they don't follow it. They, they break it. They violate it. But you know what? The $1,500 worth of cloth that they were supposed to deliver, and of course it was supposed to be $1,500 worth of 
a lot more than cloth, but um, they never did any kind of uh, inflation adjustment. adjustment. The, the, the Interior Department, every year, requisitions $1,500 worth of cloth to be distributed amongst, what, 100, 200,000 Haudenosaunee. It ain't a lot of cloth. I mean, you might be able to, you know, I don't know, cut a postage stamp, I guess, if you were really to distribute that cloth amongst everybody. So, but they still do it. And they do it so they can claim that they're still honoring it, but they don't honor any of the language. The only thing they honor is the is the outdated $1,500 worth of cloth that they, they distribute. And I got to tell you, <laughs> and I know I always manage to piss some Native people off when I do this, but some Native people just rave about this cloth <laughs> they you think that I mean, they treat it like it's the shroud of turin or something like that like this is this is holy cloth i mean it oh that's just oh that's great that's great regan thanks for uh, being able to you know uh, phone in and, and join me here i appreciate it You sound great. Look, one of the things that I was talking about, if you didn't catch it, uh, if you caught some of it, you know, I am talking about education, and I know that you're an educator. And I, and I think, you know, when, when, when you consider what Monday, um, the debate over what Monday is or isn't, you know, I, I come back to this issue about what really needs to be taught to young people in school. And, yeah, and clearly what is taught about Native people is, is either flat out wrong or it, you know, it leaves so much out. It, it, the inaccuracies are, are incredible. And of course, the, the truth of who we are, not just who they want to claim we were, is always left out of the, uh, out of the mix. So I, I would like your thoughts on, on what's your thoughts on, on what is the state of education about Native people today um, and, and where it should go?
Didn't Arizona actually ban um, that that kind of uh, or that book? What was it? Rediscovering Columbus or something? Uh, there was a there was a book that really kind of told the the, the true Columbus story, and I think a, a couple of states actually banned the book from their schools. Well, they get taught the 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 the, the about the Holocaust. I mean, uh, at, you know, at some at some point they do. The other thing I wanted to, uh, I wanted to hit. hit Well, the other thing is you mentioned uh, a scope and se sequence, and and this is a real big problem when it comes to teaching anything about Native people because we get sequenced like we were like we're objects of the past. I mean, when I was in uh, in in high school, they basically you had we had to learn the, what what they had defined as the periods of history, and it was Indians, discovery. Um, colonization and revolution i mean uh, we, we actually had these uh, these uh what do they call those devices that that you you cite so you can remember something um uh anyway this we, we used, it was like idiots do collect rusty nails that was the, the sentence we had to say and indians was represented by idiots of course uh do discovery collect uh colon but that's the way we would we were taught to memorize the, the the periods of history so when you talk about sequence we were considered a period of american history that ended with discovery and frankly that's the and and as absurd as that sounds because you and i are sitting here talking right now is that's what the law has uh, has upheld i mean because we are we are not being considered the native people we were before uh discovery we, that we have somehow our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. That's that's Justice John Marshall. Right.
Well, and, and what responsibility comes with, with the fact that, that so much of what people are experiencing today is built on a legacy of oppression and genocide? Yeah. Well, it really doesn't do justice to to much to much of the conversation at all. I mean, I oftentimes talk about the the five policies of the United States uh, towards Native people, which you know was extermination, uh, removal, um, assimilation, termination, and uh, what they called self determination. But they didn't. Uh, none of those began and ended for the next uh, phase. I mean, they overlapped. Assimilation was always. Um, one of the uh, you know the strategies in their in their toolkit, um, and frankly, th th eliminating us, eliminating our population has always been and still remains. I mean, look on the Canadian side when they did their study on missing and murdered Indigenous women, they clearly determined that the uh, the the death and the deaths and the uh, and the lack of accountability for Native women constitutes genocide they didn't soften it with cultural genocide and, and and when people say well well how could that be and i said well you don't understand in all of those definitions of genocide it says in in whole or in part if any of these things are being done and we know that native people native women native trans native queer that the what native people are experiencing across the board is is a significant percentage of uh, a, a significant percentage of our population experience this uh, these levels of oppression Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that completely. And, and, you know, and the crazy part is for all of the, the attempt to criminalize critical race theory, the bottom line is it isn't being taught in the classroom. And, and to the extent that um, diversity, equity, and inclusion 
is becoming um, more prevalent as, as program and as initiatives in, in many schools. That's being talked about, but that immediately uh, stirs up the fears, uh, especially by the right, about critical race theory, even though there's a, a, a huge space between the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, and, 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 and teaching critical race theory, which is I mean, and at its core, and, and this is why it's important that people understand what critical race theory is. What it, what the the reason the the expression was even coined or the phrase was coined, was so people could uh, take a, a a more solid look at law, at legislation, and how that's impacted by racism. I mean, and and that was I mean, in the early days of of analyzing critical race theory, that's what the scope was. And of course, when we come through the murders of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and, and so much of what we've experienced in the last several years, we understand the, the, the numbers as they look, uh, you know, death by cop for, for Native people and for black, for black people and Native people, I should say. And, and you, you, the only thing that can account for disproportionate numbers ends up being this concept of race. And if you don't if, if you don't really take that into account as you're dealing with everything, look, I mean, look, look at um, uh, or, uh, the beating that affirmative action still takes or the fact that they've, they've, you know, they've essentially said they, they don't need to have voter protection laws anymore because uh, the work has been done already. I mean, give me a freaking break. <laughs> Well, and, and, and from a native standpoint, look, I think it'd be great if, you know, states like North Dakota would just flat out say, no, native people shouldn't vote because they're, they're their own sovereign governments. But that's not what they're doing. They're just trying to do voter suppression. And the thing is, and this is where it gets where I find a lot of this stuff problematic. And you and I have talked about this in the past. But the thing is, what the system wants is is to elevate somebody from the marginalized group to make them palatable to the non-marginalized group. So let's lift uh, you know, a black person or a native person up uh, to the point where white people will vote for them because that's really what it's gonna take for them to get elected anyway. So I mean, the, you know, when you get into this conversation about the success of assimilation, I mean, one of the biggest problems I have is, 
it's great to you know to oh let's talk about the problems that exist uh, you know because of residential schools and missing and murdered indigenous women but if you're going to somehow apologize to me for residential schools but then still um really hang on the success of assimilation then that's not an apology i mean that's you know, that's like saying yeah we just had a a, a bad way of doing a, a good thing really Well, and I'm, I'm going to flat out say, you know, for those who who oftentimes hear you and I criticize the system, um, to be clear, the solution that we advocate for the most part is is community organizing. It's 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 mutual aid. It's it's the thing where you engage the people who are closest to you and you create these these concentric circles of of aid from the things that you do yourself not just trying to delegate or relegate or you know um uh cast off responsibility to somebody else that we that we accept responsibility and we acknowledge that some people can do more for others and that's what we should all be doing Well, and at some point, people have to have to stop buying into this notion that the United States is the greatest place on earth. I mean, uh, and and that therein lies part of the problem. And and yeah, you know, the place, you know, uh, the, the lands that were ours for thousands of years. Yes, it 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 was it was much more beautiful before the United States than it is now. But I think I think people have to come to the realization that, I mean, look, what what seven hundred thousand. People died in the United States of COVID. I mean, seven hundred thousand—that's the highest number of any other country from the, the from the greatest country on the planet. Are you freaking kidding me? No, it isn't. There, there are huge gaps and holes in so much of uh, of the lives of Americans, and they're being told to ignore it, and and they and they get propagandized, and uh, uh, you know, and 
and and brainwashed into believing that everything that is America is great and and it's not. Yes. Right. You know, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, that by misrepresenting history, you're promoting violence. And and that's true. I mean, look, if you get people all ginned up, I mean, look, look what took place on uh, what, January 6th there with the with the, you know, those folks who charged the Capitol and that kind of stuff. I mean, they all bought into into so many of these false narratives. And and that is what's being promoted. So, yes, if you misrepresent history, if you go out of your way to elicit this uber patriotism that that the United States actively sought to get from children. That's why you got, you know, four and five year olds standing up doing a pledge of allegiance to a flag. They don't even know what they're, what they're saying, but they're taught to recite it. And, and part of that is to is to start early to get somebody really committed to fighting for the United States. And that's violence. Regan, I want to thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I uh, look, look forward to doing it next week. And uh, hey, as, as you go out and about, Monday is Indigenous Peoples Day. And don't let anybody call it anything else. <laughs> I want to thank you guys. Uh, this is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. And this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.